We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 tonight. Mark chapter 6. I don't think I could have picked a better song <laughs> for, uh, for them to sing, uh, so that's super encouraging. I had nothing to do with the song choice, by the way. I um, want to thank Pastor for the opportunity uh, to preach. Um, it's a wonderful thing to finally know what you're supposed to be doing in life. I went a lot of my life not knowing what what my purpose was, and uh, whenever God showed me that this is it, uh, it, was, it was quite the blessing. So whenever I have the opportunity to preach, I'm very grateful for it, and uh, I do not take it for granted at all. Um, Mark chapter 6. <clears throat> Mark 6 is what I would call uh, an emotional roller coaster of a chapter. If you try to put yourself into the events of this chapter, which is uh, what I want us to do tonight, you'll find that it's a pretty mixed bag of emotions. There are some very high highs as well as some very low lows that we're going to look at tonight, uh, but the two verses I want us to look at for our main text are verses 51 and 52. So if you would please stand with me as we read them. We'll start reading in verse 51. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. The title of my message tonight is this, Don't Miss the Miracles. Don't Miss the Miracles. Thank you. You may be seated. I remember reading through this chapter several months ago, and when I came to verse 52, it stopped me dead in my tracks. Uh, if you don't know, this verse is referring to one of Jesus' most famous miracles recorded in the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000. And this is one of those great Bible stories that we all know and love. I taught a lesson on it a few months ago in Sunday school, and it's one of those lessons that I love teaching to little kids because you're talking about this miracle that Jesus performed, and you're watching their eyes get all big in amazement at what Jesus was able to do with just five loaves of bread and two small fish because it is amazing. But then you get to verse 52, and it kind of perplexed me. That verse almost just knocks the air out of this whole chapter. It's a complete contrast to what you would expect after such an incredible event. So when I read that verse on this particular occasion, it caused me to look back at the whole chapter with a completely different perspective. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. <clears throat> this is talking about Jesus' own disciples. And they're being described here as having hard hearts, hearts that are so callous that they didn't even notice that an incredible miracle had even taken place. And that verse begs the question, how did they get to that point? What was it that caused the disciples to completely miss such an incredible miracle whenever it was right in front of them? A miracle that they themselves played a part in executing. I think if we, uh, to answer that question, it, you have to look back at chapter 6, and I think the answer is found there. Uh, and tonight I want to point out three things, and we'll call them weaknesses that I believe may have caused the disciples to have hard hearts and completely miss the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. These are three weaknesses that we also need to watch out for as well, because they can and will result in us also missing the miracles of God, just as the disciples did. 
And I even went through the painstaking process of alliterating these points. Uh, I make, made sure to take a note out of Brother Cherry's preaching style, so they're easy for you to remember, all right? All right, let's get into them. Weakness number one, fear. This chapter starts off with Jesus coming back to his hometown of Nazareth. And by this time, Jesus has already gained quite the reputation. He's preached his sermon on the mount. He's healed multitudes of people. He's cast out demons. He's openly rebuked the Pharisees. And while the Pharisees didn't like him very much, the common people wanted to be around Jesus. For the most part, people were excited to be around Jesus. However, things take a different turn whenever Jesus comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. In verses 1 through 6 in this chapter, we see that Jesus was not accepted by his own people in Nazareth. And these are the people that Jesus grew up around. They were, uh, he was familiar to them, rather. Uh, it didn't matter that he was performing miracles or that his fame was spreading all around uh, the, the area. They had a pre-established view of Jesus that they couldn't get past. And uh, they couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that this man that they've known since he was just a little boy was indeed their Messiah. And from this we get verses 5 and 6 in this chapter. And he could do there no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Think about how sad those verses are. Jesus wanted to do a mighty work in the lives of the people of Nazareth, but because they rejected him, he could do nothing there. The one that's literally able to solve all of their problems they wanted nothing to do with. So, what does Jesus do? He moves on. Right after this, in verse 7, he brings his disciples in for a mission. He gives them power to cast out unclean spirits as well as power to heal the sick. But before he sends them off, he has some things that he wants to say to them. Now, if you're familiar, remember that we're talking about fear here in this first point. If you're familiar with this chapter, the obvious fear you might be thinking of uh, would be the fear of persecution or even uh, or death. Uh, because in verses 14 through 19, we get a highlight of the death of John the Baptist. Or you might also be thinking of verse 49 where the disciples are in the boat and they're thinking they're about to die because of the storm. However, fear can manifest itself in many different ways. And while I do believe that the fear of persecution may have been a possibility, I don't think that that is what the disciples would have struggled with uh, in, on this occasion. I think the fear that the disciples would have struggled with is one that is much more relevant to us than you might think. Look with me at verse 7. And he called unto them the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two and gave them power over unclean spirits and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, in what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. What strange instructions for someone to give that is about to go on a long journey. I, mean, I remember whenever I was a, a teenager, almost every week I would spend the night at my best friend's house. And uh, whenever I would go over there, we would always end up doing a lot of weird activities, just different things every, every time I went over there. The problem for me was that I never knew what random activity we would be doing until about 30 minutes before we actually did it. Now, if you know me, 
then you probably know that I'm not really a go-with-the-flow kind of person. That is not my personality at all. My friend, on the other hand, was very much that kind of person. And this wasn't really a big deal for me when the random activity that we would be doing was something like going to the mall. I was perfectly fine with that. But when the random activity was going on a 30-mile bike ride to the beach on a bicycle with extremely loose handlebars right next to a very busy highway, I have... I have a few problems with that, okay? And I'm not joking. It got to the point where when my friend would ask me to come spend the night at his house, I would get stressed out because there was never a plan. And I would ask him, what are we going to be doing? What, 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 what do I need to bring? Do I need to bring anything for this? Uh, I mean, I would, I would spend one night at his house and pack like four days worth of clothes because I had no idea what was going to happen. What's the point I'm trying to make here? If any of these disciples were like me, then these instructions that Jesus gave them would have greatly stressed them out. I don't know about you, but I want to know what the plans are. And once I know what the plans are, I want to prepare and make sure that I have the items necessary for that trip. So I believe that the fear that these men might have faced in these verses is the fear of uncertainty. They were faced with the fear of depending on God and God alone to meet their needs. The fear of depending on God to send them to the right people that will feed them, clothe them, and lodge them. And remember, we're talking about grown men here, okay? These were working men that up to this point in their life would have been pretty self-dependent. But now you take everything away from them and tell them not to depend on themselves anymore, but depend solely upon God to meet your needs, they had li quite literally nothing but the clothes on their backs, the sandals on their feet, the staff in their hands, and the leading of the Lord. And for a lot of people, especially people that are used to being self-dependent, that can be a very fearful place to be. And it may have played a role in the hardening of the disciples' hearts. So watch out for the weakness of fear. And be careful for the weakness of point number two, frustration. Just before Jesus sends the disciples off on this mission, he gives them specific instructions on what to do whenever they experience rejection. Look at verse number 11. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That act of shaking the dust off of your feet, that was a symbolic way of saying, you know, I, I wash my hands of this place. You're no longer my responsibility. You see, the disciples were sent as messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were told to go everywhere and give the gospel to everyone. The places that receive you, stay there and teach them. The places that don't, leave, get out. But when they go to these cities and these cities reject them, we need to understand that they're not really rejecting the disciples because the message is not from the disciples. The message is from Jesus. So these cities are actually rejecting Jesus. But let's just think about this for a second. Does Jesus warn his disciples for no reason in verse 11? Obviously not. The disciples were human beings just like us. And when human beings get rejected, they also tend to get frustrated. Even though it's not our message, Jesus knows this. And I believe Jesus gave them verse 11 as a warning against frustration. Because I think given the personalities of some of Jesus' disciples, he knew some of them might not take rejection very well. Remember, Jesus was followed around by some pretty passionate 
personalities, okay? You have uh, James and John, also known as the Sons of Thunder. How do you get that nickname, okay? You have Simon, who is literally called the Zealot, okay? That's a pretty radical group of people. And let's not forget Peter, all right, whose passion we know gets him into trouble on more than one occasion. I imagine these guys going off on, on this mission and trying to preach about Jesus and uh, perform these miracles, and inevitably somebody is going to say, you know, no thanks, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm not really interested. And then, of course, we know how Peter reacts, right? Oh, no problem, brother, no problem at all. Uh, have a good day. God bless you, all right? See ya. No, not Peter. That's, that's not how I imagine Peter reacting to that at all. I imagine as, as a person might go to close a door in Peter's face, he kind of puts his hand in the way and says, I don't think you actually heard what I had to say. The, 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 the message I have for you literally has the power to change your life. What, what do you mean you're not interested in, in this? There's nothing more important than this right now, sir. Which to you seems more like Peter's personality. And I'm overdoing it, obviously, but... You, Peter has proven himself to be pretty passionate. But this is also a warning to us 2,000 years later. People are going to want nothing to do with us. People will reject the message that we have for them, even though it has the power to literally change their life. But we need to remember that the message we carry is not our own. The moment we take offense because someone rejects the message of Jesus is the moment that we start caring more about ourselves, about our feelings, than we do about Jesus. And at that point, we have fallen prey to the weakness of frustration, and we are on our way to missing the miracles of God. So while I don't know to what extent, I do believe that fear and frustration both could have played a role in the hardening of the disciples' hearts in verse 52. But there's one more thing that I believe also contributed and might even be the biggest culprit to the disciples missing the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And that is point number three, fatigue. Fatigue. Look with me at verse number 12. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Now skip down to verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while, for there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. So um, as Jesus and his disciples are, uh, oh, let me go back. Uh, these disciples were doing some hard work. Okay, they were, they were out performing this, these miracles, preaching the gospel, doing what Jesus had told them to do. Uh, and they, they dispersed and did all this. And this was by no means a relaxing time for them. Verse 31 tells us that they were so busy that they didn't even have a moment to take a break to eat. So they are no doubt extremely tired and physically worn out at this point, which is why Jesus tells them in verse 31 to come out into a desert place uh, or a secluded area and rest for a little while because they needed it. Well, they finally get that moment of rest that they've been waiting for, that they very much needed, but it's very short-lived. Look at verse 32 with me now. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, 
and was moved with compassion toward them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So as Jesus and his disciples were sailing to this secluded place to rest, the multitude saw where they were going and ran ahead of them to meet them. And we see in that beautiful verse 34, Jesus, who, by the way, is also very tired and physically worn out, without any regard for himself, shows compassion on the multitude and spends the next several hours healing the sick and teaching them. But at this point, just based on the text, I do not believe that the disciples had the same mind that Christ had about this multitude. Remember, they expected rest, but now they have more work to do. And I have a sneaking suspicion that when the disciples saw the multitude, they were not happy nor compassionate towards them. But honestly, I believe that the disciples were annoyed and even aggravated by this multitude. And lest you think I'm making an unfair assumption, let me first ask you, how do you feel when after a long, hard day of work, after spending an hour in that wonderful Atlanta traffic, amen, you finally get home and get the moment of rest that you've been waiting for all day, but then just as you kick off your shoes and sit down on your comfy couch, the kids start screaming. Somebody rings the doorbell, uh, the refrigerator stops working, the bathroom starts to flood. Something or someone interrupts what you thought would be the one moment you finally had to get some rest. Let me ask you, what thoughts are going through your head in a moment like that? And I believe it's at this very point that their mindset shifts. This is the very moment that their purpose shifts from serving the Lord to let's just get this over with so we can finally get some rest. And the way I imagine this is clear in my mind, hour after hour goes by of Jesus teaching and healing the multitude. And I don't think the disciples were just sitting by doing nothing while this was happening either. I don't know for sure, but the disciples may have also been teaching and healing just as they were in verses 12 and 13. But I definitely don't think they were doing nothing. And then we get to verse 35, and now the day is far spent, meaning it is late. It's well past the time that these people should be out. And what happens next is almost comical to me. Look at verse 35. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred pennyworth of bread and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. Again, this is just my opinion, but I don't believe for a second that the disciples actually cared about the fact that this multitude hadn't eaten anything. And I know I sound like I'm being really harsh on the disciples, but remember, verse 52 says that their hearts were hardened. Something had to have caused that. So I'm just trying to look back at the chapter in the context of that verse. And I think at this point, they're really just looking for any excuse at all to finally stop working. And they're trying to get rid of this crowd by making it look like it's coming from a place of concern. And I think Jesus knows this, which makes his response to their concern even more hilarious. All right. Give them something to eat. 
That was clearly not the response that the disciples were, were expecting, was it? And I believe it's right here. Right here, this is the moment where we get the culmination of all three of these points. Okay, we, we know that the disciples are completely exhausted at this point. I mean, it's been hours after the fact that Jesus told them that they're going to get some rest. Hours after that. Uh, all they want to do is rest right now. They're fatigued, okay? Problem is, there's this multitude of well over 5,000 people that won't leave them alone and is keeping them from getting the rest that they so greatly desire. Frustration. And on top of this, they have now been commanded, not asked, commanded by Jesus to feed this multitude. Have you ever been asked, not asked, have you ever been commanded to do something that you knew you were not even remotely capable of doing in your own power? How did it make you feel? Fearful. John chapter 6 records this same story and in verse 5 Jesus asks Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? And you can tell the disciples are not even thinking about the possibility of a miracle because of Philip's answer in verse 7. He says, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone may take a little. A penny worth in that time was equivalent to a day's wages for a common laborer, which means that 200 penny worth comes out to about seven months wages, which they certainly didn't have. They're saying, what do you mean feed them? Lord, even if we had seven months worth of wages to buy these people bread, that still wouldn't be enough for everyone just to have even a small portion, let alone actually feed them. In other words, it's not possible. Which is exactly what Jesus wants. And the rest, as they say, is history. Jesus does the impossible. He breaks the bread and gives it to his disciples to hand out to the multitude and feeds over 5,000 people with nothing more than five little barley loaves and two small fish. And then when everyone is, is satisfied with the meal, Jesus has his disciples gather up the fragments and they return with 12 baskets full of food, much more than they had to begin with. And yet, we still get verse 52. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. And I can't help but read this text and think that when the disciples took up those fragments and had 12 baskets full and brought them to Jesus, I can't help but wonder if Jesus looked at them expecting them to be excited. We know that the multitude was excited because in John 6, the multitude wanted to make Jesus king after performing this miracle. But I wonder if Jesus also maybe had a desire to see his own disciples show that much excitement for what he had just done. But the disciples did no such thing at all. The job that the disciples were doing was of the Lord. They were doing what God had told them to do. But they got fixated on getting the task done for the wrong reason. So when the time came for them to stop and see what the Lord had done, they saw nothing. And I believe it disappointed Jesus. Why? Why, why would this have disappointed the Lord? Well, why does God perform miracles in the first place? You see, we get this idea that God's miracles are performed solely for our benefit. More often than not, we pray and ask God to perform miracles in our lives because they will in some way help us. 
You know, God, I, I lost my job. I have, I have no prospects for a new job. I, I need you to do a miracle and open the door for me to get a new job. God, my, my family is really struggling financially. We have this unexpected debt to pay that we, we can't afford. I need you to do a miracle and provide for us. God, I'm, I'm sick. The doctors are telling me that it's, it's not looking good and there's nothing that they can do about it. I need you to do a miracle and heal me. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying right now. There's absolutely nothing wrong with praying those kinds of prayers. God wants us to pray those kinds of prayers. And yes, a natural result of him answering those prayers is that we do indeed benefit from them. But that is not the purpose of miracles. The purpose of miracles is to remind us of who God is to give him the glory. He's a jealous God, and he will have the glory for his miracles. It goes back to the command given in Psalm 4610 to be still and know that I am God. That's the purpose of miracles, to prove that he is God Almighty and that we glorify him as such. So when we miss the miracles, then that means that we missed the purpose. And when we miss the purpose, we displease the Lord. And I don't believe this comes from a place of wrath or fury on God's part, but rather a place of love and a longing for us to understand and better know who it is that we call God. The disciples missed the miracle. Therefore, they missed the purpose. So because the disciples missed the miracle, God made them see it. And don't miss this. When God has to make us see his miracles he may have to rattle our cages to do so. Jesus immediately tells them to get into the ship and sail to the other side while he sends the crowd away and goes to the mountain to pray. And let's pick up in verse 48. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them walking upon the sea and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, be of good cheer. It is I be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship and the wind ceased and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Again, we see these three points in these verses. But this time it's in a much more intense and uncomfortable way. Remember, several of the men in this boat are experienced fishermen by trade, so they've spent most of their lives on the water. But none of that experience makes the winds any less boisterous or the water any less power. And no matter how hard they fight to get back on course, they cannot make any headway against this mighty storm. And no doubt, they are frustrated. We have this thing in our house called a row machine. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? A row machine? Yeah, it's... It's really cool. It's an exercise machine that's supposed to simulate rowing. It's pretty big, uh, but it, it kind of folds up so it doesn't take up too much space whenever the inevitable happens and you decide to treat it the same way that you treated that poor treadmill that you got two Januarys ago, thus banishing it to the corner of your garage to die with all of your other fitness endeavors. Anyways, uh, if you've ever been on a row machine before or have ever rowed in a boat for that matter, um, then you know that rowing is not 
easy. Rowing utilizes a ton of muscles in your arms, your back, your core, and even your legs. And just a few minutes of heavy rowing is enough to make most people very, very tired. By verse 48, these men have been rowing for hours in a raging storm and making no progress at all. They were fatigued. And the harder they try, they they realize that nothing that they're doing is working. The wind is tossing them around like ragdolls and they're taking on water and they're realizing that they're in a mess. They're in trouble. And now they're seeing what appears to be a ghost coming towards them on the water and they are filled with fear. Well, now they're ready to see what they should have seen a long time ago. Or rather, who they should have seen a long time ago. And we get those sweet words from Jesus in verse 50. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. This is such a beautiful moment because in the disciples' minds, they are not calm. They're thinking, what do you mean, be of good cheer? Nothing is going the way that it's supposed to go right now. What do you mean, be not afraid? We've lost control of the boat. There's nothing we can do. We're about to die. Why shouldn't we be afraid? Because it is I. I am here. You you lost sight of who I was with the loaves and the fishes because you got too focused on yourself. You fell prey to your feelings and emotions and now look where they've taken you. You've allowed them to take your eyes off of me and forget who I am. And it's time to get your eyes back on me. And then Jesus steps into the boat and immediately the wind ceases Immediately, the waves fall. And as the ship gently rocks back and forth, the only sound heard is those last drops of rain that are falling from the sky and hitting the water. And the disciples are in complete shock. They see this man. This this man that just came to them walking on water. This man that, whenever he enters the boat, calms the raging storm that was threatening their lives just 10 seconds before, for the second time, by the way. Jesus did this same thing back in Mark chapter 4. They didn't get it before. They didn't get the miracle of the loaves, but they're starting to get it now. This is no ordinary man. This is God. Believe it or not, this message is not intended to just point out the flaws and failures of the disciples, although it may have seemed like that at times. This message is intended to show us that we are just as, if not far more ignorant than the disciples were about the miracles of God. We can still see the miracles of God every day, and the definition of a miracle is uh, it's an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. In other words... It's those moments where God is working in your life. Unfortunately, I believe many of us have grown callous to them, though. You know, when you're in a church that's alive and doing something for God and everyone else is excited about what God is doing, but you just don't see the reason for all the excitement, you're the one with the hard heart. You will no longer see the miracles of God at that point. But missing the miracles is just evidence of a much greater problem in our lives. 
Sin has clouded our vision from seeing all that God is doing, and we need to get it dealt with because he deserves for us to notice his miracles. He deserves for us to give him praise and honor and glory for the works he does because that is the sole purpose of miracles. And God doesn't want to shake us to the core like he did the disciples for us to finally get who he is. But when we get so self-absorbed and worried about what it is that I want and how comfortable I am and all we're concerned with is self, we may just be giving him no choice but to really rattle our cages and make us extremely uncomfortable so that we will finally see just who it is that we call God. Make no mistake, the storm that those disciples found themselves in did not just happen. God was shaking them because they didn't grasp who he was when he fed the 5,000. And he had to allow them to go through this terrible storm before they were able to see who he was. But he doesn't want us to wait till then to see who he is. He wanted us to get that long before it, long before he had to send us a storm. So where are we? In all of this, how do we avoid falling into this trap? How do we not let fear and frustration uh, and fatigue creep in and harden our hearts? How do we maintain the right purpose in our lives? I believe the answer is found in Proverbs 16, verse 3. You don't have to turn there, but I know my uh, high school students are thinking, no surprise, he found the answer in Proverbs. We're going through our whole classes on Proverbs. Proverbs 16.3, commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. You know, our thoughts reveal a lot about us. They reveal to us our motivation and our purpose behind our actions. And that word thoughts uh, in this verse is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word mahashaba. And six times in the Bible, that same word is used to describe one's purpose. So you can also read that verse, commit thy works unto the Lord and thy purpose shall be established. How does this apply uh, in, in these three areas? As I said before, fear can manifest itself in many different ways. And if we let it, fear can easily keep us from seeing God work in our lives. Fear of putting yourself out there and going soul winning. Fear of not knowing what to say if you do try to give the gospel to someone. Fear of what your friends or family might think of you if you get all in for God. Fear of what God might call you to do if you fully surrender to him. All of these will greatly hinder you from seeing the incredible miracles that God wants to do in your life. And can I just say they're all lies straight from the pits of hell. Dr. Jim Van Geldren, if he was here, he would call them question marks. Those fiery darts that Satan has been hurling our way since the dawn of humanity in the Garden of Eden to make us question whether or not God really knows what he's doing. Whether or not he really has our best interest in mind. Whether or not he really will take care of you. And that kind of fear causes you to take your eyes off of the eternal and shift them down to the temporal. The kind of fear that will cause you to completely miss seeing the amazing miracles in your life because you're too afraid to give full control over to God and depend on him and him alone to meet your needs and guide you in that perfect will that he has for you. Amen. And there's another word for that. It's called unbelief. But if you commit your works unto the Lord, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I will do. Wherever it is you want me to go, I will go. Then your thoughts will be established and you will know 
and take rest in the fact that regardless of how scary it might seem at times, there is no place safer or better than directly in the center of God's will. Do you get frustrated when serving the Lord? How do you feel when you go out soul winning and everyone refuses to answer the door? When you try to give the gospel to someone and they couldn't care less about what you have to say and they send you off. Or when you're teaching in your Sunday school class and you feel like no one's paying attention. Or when you're helping out in whatever ministry you're in and things aren't really going your way. Do you let frustration creep in? Why am I even doing this? Nobody's answering the door. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Every time I try to give the gospel, I get rejected. This is such a waste of my time. Service is not about you. It's about Jesus and others. So get your focus off of yourself. Commit your works unto the Lord. Lord, I I realize this is not about me. I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this because you told me to and I want to obey you. I just want people to experience the same miracle of salvation that you've done in my life. Lord, it's an honor that you even would use somebody like me to do your work. Your thoughts will be established. What about fatigue? Are you burnt out? Do you feel like you have nothing left in the tank to give God? And please understand, I'm I'm not saying that fatigue is a sin. That was the tricky thing about that point. Uh, Fatigue is a natural consequence of hard work. God made our bodies to get tired after we do work. That's not the sin here. What is a sin, however, is whenever we let our fatigue shift our focus from God and onto ourselves. When we allow our purpose to shift from serving the Lord to serving ourselves. That is sin. It's when our purpose shifts from serving the Lord to, I just want to finish what I'm doing so I can finally go home and get some rest. Or when our purpose shifts from serving the Lord to, I sure hope somebody notices how hard I'm working. Or when our purpose shifts from serving the Lord to, man, I'm doing so much stuff for God. I mean, I'm not bragging, but I lead a table in Sunday school. I sing in the choir, I help in the nursery, I work the camera, I help usher, I play in the orchestra, I clean the buildings, etc., etc., etc. Don't be fooled. That mindset is not motivated by a love for the Lord. That mindset is motivated by a love for yourself. You know, Proverbs 25, 27 says, for men to search their own glory is not glory. And the funny thing is we brag about how many hours we worked in the week and then we complain about how exhausted we are because of all the work that we we did that we're so proud of doing. But then we use that same exhaustion as an excuse to not do the things that we know that we should be doing. You know, we, we use tiredness as an excuse for everything. Some might even be using it right now as an excuse to fall asleep in a church service. Don't worry, I won't hold it against you. So many use the excuse that they're too tired to go to the Saturday night prayer meetings. You know, that excuse is exactly what keeps you from seeing the miracles of God answering those prayers that were specifically brought up in those prayer meetings. 
You see someone that hasn't been to church in months show up on a Sunday morning or a random guest walk in and get saved on a Sunday morning and you think, oh, well, that's nice. But what you didn't see were those that were agonizing in prayer the night before, asking God to bring back that one that hasn't been faithful to church or to bring the lost and broken through our doors and save their souls. You didn't see any of that. Sure, you got to see the end result, but miracles are not based on how they ended. Miracles are based on how they began. Yes, Jesus fed over 5,000 people. But did you know a catering business can do that too? The miracle is that he started with only five loaves and two small fish. Yes, Jesus helped a man to see, but an optometrist can also do that too. The miracle is that the man was blind from his birth. Whenever you're only seeing the end result, you're not getting the whole picture. You are missing a major part of the miracles just sitting back, content being a bystander, when you could be a very part of those miracles. You may be missing the miracles in your personal life because you're too tired to take an hour out of your day and spend it talking to God. Oh, don't go there. You don't understand my schedule. I have so much work to do. I don't have time to take an hour out of my day to pray. I'm exhausted already as it is. Let me say it this way. You can't afford to not spend time in prayer with the Lord. You're only doing yourself a disservice by withholding unimaginable blessings that your Father in heaven is eager to give you. You may have heard the name Martin Luther before. He was a German monk that nailed his 95 thesis to a church door in 1517, sparking the Protestant Reformation. And he was a very busy man. But he was quoted as saying, work. Work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. That's quite the viewpoint to have. I can't tell you how many times in my morning time with the Lord, the first words out of my mouth have been, Lord, I'm tired. He knows. He understands. He made us that way. But when we stick to it, when we follow the process, when we commit our works unto the Lord, he will always, without fail, establish our thoughts. He will give us the right motivation. He will align our purpose. And that is the key to not missing the miracles. In all thy ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. That's a promise. We are incapable of having anything but a selfish purpose until we acknowledge God, invite him into our lives, and allow him to show us our true purpose. And that is, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And when we do that, it's impossible for us to not see the miracles. Don't force God to make you see him. Deal with the sin in your life so you can finally see him for who he truly is. He reveals himself to us in miraculous ways every day. Don't miss the miracles. Let's all stand.